You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. It is my sincere pleasure today to welcome our esteemed guest, Greg Papadopoulos. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about him. He's currently the CTO of Sun Microsystems. But when he was your age, he was a student. He started out at UC San Diego and then went on to MIT. And uh, he stayed on at MIT, he got his master's and his PhD, and then stayed on as a faculty member where he taught CS and electrical engineering. He left MIT to go start several companies, and since 1994, he's been at Sun Microsystems as their chief technology officer. He's got a terrific talk today called Citizen Engineer. Can't wait to hear it. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Um, and I really appreciate I appreciate the opportunity. So uh, I'm kind of a high bandwidth sort of person. Uh, I do like being back here in in kind of in, I, I saw the chalk back here. This is this dates back to when I used to lecture was was with chalk. And I um, given the opportunity, I'm going to turn off all of this electronic stuff and start writing on the chalkboard. Um, but what what. Uh, uh, in, in sort of the first part of this, I'm going to do a dangerous thing, which try to talk about four different things in a period of time that I should responsibly talk about one thing. Um, but these are, these are derived from um, a, a book that is uh, uh, just published um, within the last month um, with my co-author, and I don't see him here yet, uh, uh, David Douglas, who uh, uh, headed up uh, uh, is a chief sustainability officer at Sun Microsystems. And the genesis of this was uh, actually both Dave and his role of running sort of eco-responsibility at the com company and now cloud computing. Uh, my, my, my job as, as CTO, a lot of that evangelizing around intellectual property and open source and, and uh, network effects and the like. We, we found that the engineers at the company, both people recently out of school as well, people been there for a long time, had some gaps. And uh, the, the gaps in these areas of when we say, well, we really need to do something around sustainable engineering or uh, 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 positions on, on intellectual property, uh, we, we found we were educating a lot. And so we decided to sort of short circuit this and go write a book. So we could go hand people things, go learn this, and then we'll have a conversation about what to do. So um, as I said, the sort of the, the four parts of this talk are that concept. So kind of taking those areas principally, eco-responsibility, the other one around intellectual responsibility, putting them together in sort of this, this rubric that we call citizen engineer. So this, so that a, if you will, the first part is about this observation and the nature and the change in engineering. Um, in, the, in, in sort of the two middle pieces are a little bit of a dive into an aspect of thinking about uh, eco-engineering in, in, I think, a very constructive way. Uh, another snippet is around intellectual property and open source. And then the final part is sort of things I've learned around managing innovation in, in the last uh, dozen years. So there you go. Uh, yeah, four talks for the price of one. First, let me just survey how many engineers in the audience people consider engineers. Excellent. How many people would say you're scientists? All right, first, first group are going to like the talk. The second group won't like this intro very much. So if you want to get up and leave, that's OK with me. Um, the uh, uh, big picture observation of you know, what's happened in the way we think about uh, uh, ideas or innovation. Uh, and I think if you, if you looked at last century, uh, What's on the left-hand side is sort of the, the evocative pieces, right? You think of scientists that are uh, you're sort of toiling away inside uh, companies, uh, working on secret projects, uh, and, and those go out and revolutionize or you know, open up new markets uh, for those companies and, and very planned. And on the right-hand side is, is evocative of what I think what we all are living now in experiencing, which is uh, very much uh, the... I think what it means to be in a networked age. And that's, that's what we're all living, and you are the, you know, the digital natives here of the networking revolution that, that characterizes our generations. At the top of this, right, this is where you like it as, he, as an engineer. If, if last century was really the century of the scientists, this century is the century of the engineer. 
Right. And and what what is that? And and you know what 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 what's an engineer? Uh, and maybe you're you're saying why am I even doing this? Maybe another question, but I'll save that for for later. Um, an engineer is a constructive artist, and uh, uh, well, artist it is. <laughs> engineering is an interpretive form. You bring to it creativity. There's, there's a real stereotype that people have of us, which is, you know, everything's from a book, and, uh, and you look it up, and then you go do the next thing, and, and that's not at all true. Uh, there's, there's a lot of, of uh, uh, sort of taste and experience that goes into it. Um, and the, the central thing that you do, I mean, you use technological tools, and, and, but the, the central activity is this sort of optimization under constraints. So, you know, I, I want to solve some problem, make it lighter, cheaper, better, um, you know, more efficient, whatever it is, uh, some new function, and here are the constraints. You know, how much power it consumes, how much it costs, what, what, are, what are those constraints? That's the art of, of engineering. Um, now, oftentimes it's sort of like, and, and maybe this will help you too, when you have to explain the difference between a scientist and an engineer. And, uh, you know, I, I look at, I'm a big space buff. One of my pastimes, I'm, I'm a trustee for the SETI Institute in Mountain View, which is, is truly a lot of fun. Um, but, you know, Mars rover. So you look at it from a science side. That's, it's talked about a lot. You know, go find, is there evidence of past water on Mars, maybe even life there? Okay, ah, interesting question. I like that question. Yeah, it's interesting science. Engineering. That's what this thing is in my mind. This is outstanding, right? These things have been up there for some 2,000 souls plus. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, here's something. You build a robot that crawls around digging in the dirt of another planet. To me, that's way cool. That's, this is a masterful feat of engineering. Um, the science is maybe pedestrian there. One of my, my, my uh, uh, favorite quotes, speaking of JPL, from where the first director of JPL was, was uh, uh, Theodore von Karman. Um, and and, uh, and I, I told you the scientists weren't going to like this too much. And scientist describes what is. The engineer creates what never was. And, and there's, there's a lot in that. Uh, it, at the basic level, when I say engineering is a creative art, it's, it, I mean a constructive art. It is a constructive art. It is the construction of things. And, uh, and I think that's what, what defines it. Okay. So all of that uh, 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 feel-good stuff, um, things are changing. And, and again, the response of, well, what, what, what are the, you know, the gaps in the way we think about this in, in education in particular? There's some very big changes that you take a, a, a step back uh, are a bit obvious. I mean, in, in the middle is this pervasive collaboration. That's the networking thing, right? Here's one of the greatest tools that uh, we've, we've invented in the last couple of generations digital networking. And, and of course, that, that has uh, a lot of effect on the way that, that engineering itself is conducted. A whole new scale, and there are really two levels of this scale to think about. There's the nanoscale, being able to uh, you know, get down and, and, and obviously do atomic level uh, manipulation of matter and, and uh, and think about that level, but there's also the scale of the amplification, which is the global scale of uh, manufacturer production distribution of products. And so you're able to engineer something and have that idea amplified very quickly, for better or for worse, across uh, uh, global markets. And, and all of this leads to a, a broader influence in, in engineering. And um, there are external changes, too, that Buffett, the art, um, uh, certainly everything around uh, eco-engineering, I'll, I'll say more about that. Corporate social responsibility is, is one that you might not think about and come to mind, but this is, as a company, we are, we are uh, asked by our customers to demonstrate everything ranging from you know, the ethics of our finances to you know, the, our, our position, what, what labor uh, looks like and, and, and how we treat people in the company, all the way to uh, to the the ec ecology of our of our products. Um, here's the tough part: 
that question that gets asked of you is a transitive question, meaning that we have to answer that not just for what we do and control, but for the thousands and thousands of companies that supply to us. This is a big deal. Um, security and privacy, rise of digital goods, the uh, tighter uh, 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 regulatory control, all of these are sort of these, these externalities, if you will, that, that, that buffet what we do. So this leads, as I said, kind of to this concept, if you will, this rubric of, um, well, how do you expect somebody or what's the, uh, the, the sort of role uh, be able to bridge these sets of concerns? And, um, and that, that comes up to this central notion of a, of a citizen engineer, which we think of as this, this sort of bridge, if you will, between society and science. It's, it's between this pure knowledge and how that knowledge is used. That's, that's the, at least the, the ideal. And I'm going to give you some real sort of ideal things here and then jump into uh, you know, sort of the two promised little meteor topics. But, um, you know, we, we really see these, these areas of, and again, these are pragmatic things that we find we have to teach in order to, to be able to meet the, the business needs that we're in. It's both, you know, eco, techno, if you will, intellectual responsibility, things around IP, and social. And, and the social is, is this, this transitive issue around, around uh, uh, social responsibility. If, if uh, you, you, you want to become this in our mind, uh, it, it means that your knowledge base has to grow. Right? So the center of engineer's knowledge is the engineering itself. It's the technology. Right? And uh, not to take anything away from that. But you're, you, know, you really do have to understand and be able to interface with, and I think that's sort of the, the key concepts up here, uh, ecology, intellectual property, uh, business, public policy, et cetera. Now, I'm going to, and, and, and before you, you know, you sort of scoff at some of this stuff, <laughs> things like public policy or, or law or something, um, I want you to actually think, you know, if, if uh, you have these reactions sometimes about how people who aren't trained in science or engineering, you know, can completely misunderstand something technically or scientifically, and you can go, oh my gosh, where did they go to school? What are they thinking, right? Well, some of those very same people might be thinking that of us about, you know, what about, you? do you know how a law is made? How policy actually happens? You know, what, where did these people go to school? And, and so there's, a, there's, there's actually an obligation, and this is part of the duty here I, in our minds, is to, is to understand those things and to reach out and be able to, to, to bridge that. And then finally, you know, there's influence here, and uh, I, could, I could go on about this. Uh, I'll give you a, a, an interesting statistic. If you look at the CEOs, the Spencer Stewart study of the CEOs of Fortune 500, the, the number one undergraduate degree wasn't marketing, wasn't finance, wasn't business, it was engineering. As 20% of the CEOs of the Fortune 500 have engineering undergraduate degrees. So uh, on to the, uh, the two middle topics, all right? So I'm going to spend time on sort of what we put as a, uh, I think, this, this, these organizing principles around uh, environmental responsibility and, um, and then intellectual responsibility, so IP. So on the environmental responsibility, the thing to, we think that, you know, sort of the key organizing principle here is really about thinking about life cycles of products. Right? So that's, that's, do you want to think about it? This, this is actually really key in some sense to, to distill this down because uh, when you get involved with eco, environmental, or uh, a number of these issues, there are thousands or literally things that, that impinge on you at once. And how do you sort out? So uh, product life cycles. Um, this, this image here. Okay, it goes to uh, an article, a column that George Will uh, wrote uh, that was, you know, well, his claim was if you were faced with the decision of buying a new car, you needed a new car, what you should do is get a used Hummer and find the nearest Prius and crush it. And um, the, the reasoning being that, that, uh, that reusing that existing vehicle, no matter if it, even though it's less energy efficient, or fuel efficient is a much has a lower environmental impact than 
the admittedly more fuel-efficient Prius, but that you had to go manufacture and have all of the, the implications of the manufacturing, plus things like disposal of batteries and, and uh, you know, what's the life cycle <laughs> argument of the product. Now, there are a lot of reasons why there are flaws in that argument, but it's a really important one in particular. The differences aren't actually that big, and we can get into philosophy. I think you should buy Priuses because it sort of forward invests into the capital cycle of innovation around actually getting hybrids so that they are, in a life cycle sense, demonstrably uh, uh, better than, than existing cars. So let me, let me go into this life cycle, um, um, uh, dive into this a bit. And uh, um, so on the left-hand side is uh, a set of words, reduce, reuse, recycle, eco-efficiency. You all like that stuff, you hear it? It's kind of the food pyramid of the eco-efficient living world. I want you to forget it. Right? It's not that it's not important, it's just, in some sense, if, if you look at it, the left-hand side of this is really about you know, uh, making things less bad. And a, uh, an engineering or a constructive way of it is, how do we make things good, or how do we make things better? Uh, and that is, the life cycle view that we, we see the, the phases of life cycle as you make a product, you use a product. This last phase is not recycling, it's about renewing the resources that you used in the product. Okay, so that, I'm gonna go into this right-hand side, sort of tear it apart, right? The first step here is I'm just gonna kind of redraw the cycle a little bit differently for you, and uh, plus give you the, uh, uh, this, this, this is, uh, by the way, if. If you haven't read Cradle to Cradle uh, uh, by, by McDonough and, and Browngard, um, it's, you can read it literally a day on the beach. Okay? Do it. It's really important. Go do it. Um, and this is just taking, you know, it's our interpretation of this. It's, it was actually a very inspiring foundation for the, for the work that, that we've done. So I'm just taking the cycle. And ignore the, the green arrow. Green is good now, right? That's a good color, so ignore it for a second. Um, and, and I've just linearized the, okay, you, you start with some uh, resources and materials, if you will, the food for this process. Um, you make something, you use it, and then at the end you ask, can I, do I renew it? Or what's, what's, what's the end of that cycle? At the end of the cycle I have essentially waste. Okay, now waste can be a good thing, so this is part of your, your re- recalibration and rethinking about this stuff. If you, you go through this cycle, you may look at the, the depending on the product, the e eco in implications on this or the ecological footprint of the product could be very different. Um, it could be that the making, the manufacture of the product is, is where most of the impact is. Uh, it could be that it's its operation, so in our business, uh, server computer systems, most of their ecological impact is in their use. It's the energy consumption over their lifetime. If you have your laptop, most of its, its uh, the eco impact is actually in its manufacturer because they don't consume that much energy over, over their lifetime. And some things maybe it's the e-waste at the end or, or the landfill. So the, the, the important closing of this cycle is this, this, this green arrow. And the uh, the, the, the really key concept, to, to, according to, to uh, McDonough and Braungart, is you know, are you able to essentially upcycle this waste into something that's a useful uh, resource to, to restart your cycle? And it's different than recycling, and often they will use the term recycle to be down, down cycling. Right? If you take uh, some you know, nice plastics that you build bottles out of and shred them up, and you get less nice stuff to go build, you know, clothing, right? That's not actually, that's, that's downcycling. It's a degradation. It's degrading those materials as you go through the process. So it's, 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 an, it's almost an entropy argument here. How do you get this waste back into the cycle? And uh, in their term, waste equals food. Okay, so um, just to uh, um, really give you the, I think, at least for me, this is sort of the, uh, the, the real insight about what's really going on in our, why, where we're messing up. And why we get into this, let's reduce everything because that will reduce the impact versus try to figure this out. So this is a constructive way of thinking about it. You really want to separate into two cycles. Biological cycles, right? Biological stuff, and that's stuff that's eaten by us or critters, right? And technical stuff. This is stuff that we go, you know, are very important for our technical economy of building things like 
laptops and, and the like. Right? And um, actually, the, the most important part about this, so you, you can think of bio, this is mulching. Right? <laughs> and it's kind of, there's a solar cycle in here, there's a bunch of great stuff. Um, this is, well, we're working on that one. Okay? And that's the engineering challenge for you all. It, it is, uh, how do we really do this? Here's really this very important, it's a safety tip. Do not cross the streams. The really bad stuff happens is when waste from the technical waste, right? You know, rare earth stuff that we use that are very valuable over on this side, uh, lead, um, you know, get into this cycle. That's bad. That's pollution. That's a whole bunch of things that we don't like. Actually, if you if you want just a, a little further on this and thinking about it, the the most important thing that you can do on the right hand side is not just keep these waste streams out of this one. So you have a ability to sort of you know reclaim materials and bring them back up as raw materials. Is it actually the purity of those materials are very important? Okay, so um, let me ground this for you. You get it a little abstract, less abstract. Is that uh, when you say you have you know aluminum in something that you manufacture? We have you know, we use aluminum for you know bezels or something on a on a computer. You want when you you're at the end of the lifetime of a machine and you want to uh, renew that machine, you want to reclaim the metals that are in there. We learned something very simple, right? Don't stick sticker. Don't put labels on the aluminum. Right? Just putting a sticker on a piece of aluminum actually degrades the value of the aluminum because you have to either clean it all off with some solvents and things and get it pure again, or it gets put into a, a lower uh, part of the metal cycle. It's less useful as, as aluminum in the process. So really, from an engineering point of view, this process is a renewal. A very key part of that is you design for disassembly. And you design for what happens at the end of, of a product. And then if you, you really want to uh, uh, take this into a bigger idea that, that intersects with, I think, what the network age lets us do, it's converting products into services. So you, know, you could either buy computers and deal with this yourself, or it's the business, it's the business plan, actually, to close that loop around uh, renewal. So if you're getting your computing from a cloud computing provider, that provider can go be responsible for that entire, that entire cycle. Or you can imagine business models here, um, you know, rather than sell water filters to somebody, who then you, know, you use them and then discard them or something, sell them clean water. The service of, we'll sell you so many gallons metered through the, and we'll service the, the water filters. And you'll probably engineer a water filter that allows uh, reuse and, and renewal in some ways. And there, there, there are many examples of that. I'm, at some point, cars could be treated like air transportation. You know, air transportation is a service that's delivered. We don't worry about the life cycle of the airplanes that we, we fly in, but you worry about um, the car that you drive. And then finally, these, these last uh, uh, views here, I think, are, are uh, really uh, important guidelines for us because this is a big area to navigate. And at the, you know, sort of our distillation of what's important here is you got to stay legal. You got to understand what the laws are around, around the world and, uh, and they vary. Um, really focus on the business opportunities because the, it, is, it is about uh, return on investment in here uh, that, that drives, puts the fuel into the, the eco uh, cycles in companies. Um, but you do have to keep your eye on the biggest impacts, even if they're not you know, by themselves um, um, uh, business, you know, the, the top business thing. For instance, we deal with taking lead out of, uh, or hazardous materials out of electronics has been a, a big regulatory thing, which is at some level, it's really um, unfortunate on an engineering side because lead is an extremely useful uh, uh, electronic uh, uh, element. But uh, it, it enters that biological cycle, right, through waste streams. So you got to stop. And, and always go after the low-hanging fruit. There's a lot of it here. OK, so switching gears. Right? This is going into another aspect of this, this sort of rubric of, of, of engineering, um, and citizen engineering, techno responsibility or, or, or intellectual responsibility, and a, a uh, I would say not quite at the same power of a unifying principle, but it is one of, 
of, uh, of uh, particular uh, personal opinion as well is uh, the importance of innovation networks and the importance of, uh, of essentially building those models and thinking of integrating uh, innovation that happens in other places and the network effects around innovation. And what is that, you know, innovation happens elsewhere, which is a Bill Joy uh, uh, quote. What does that, that mean? Or innovation happens everywhere is maybe the, the other way to think about it. The, if, if you're at a company, you're, the smart people don't work only for you, right? There are more smart people elsewhere. You have to recognize that, right? And, and, and this is the sort of Tom Sawyer thing. How do you get them to work on your stuff? You know, what if you, you want other people to be, you want to be sort of a catalyst, Right? How do you act in that catalytic way? You get them to work on it because it's cool, because it's free. That's key, because your stuff lets them do even cooler things. Right? That's, so how do you get that to happen? How do you get other people to, to work off of your ideas and you know, um, build network effects around what you do? How do you do that? There's one simple idea. You make it free. And in, in the Richard Stallman sense, this is free as in freedom, not free as in beer, right? Much as that might be useful as well. Um, and, and the free as in freedom is taking the ideas that you're working on and the artifacts and finding ways of sharing those and sharing those in a way that invites other people to both participate and to riff their own, right? To, and this is certainly the um, the basis of thinking in open source software. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but there's a, there's a business thesis here, which is that this kind of sharing creates communities. Right? And those communities extend beyond the walls of your company. That's really key. Right? The communities can be of developers. They can be of users in the case of, of uh, software. And those communities, their growth goes and creates markets. Right? So once you have people adopting your technology or using it, or your service, something like YouTube is a great example of, of uh, you know, shared user communities. And, um, and there's a market there somewhere. You figure it out. So um, this comes back to, well, why do you need to know all this intellectual property stuff? <coughs> ah, well, um, how do you do this? It's actually, you want, this is where using and understanding the legal system becomes a tool. And it becomes a tool that allows you to shape these communities in the way that you'd like. So uh, you know, just sort of the, the 101 on that for most of this stuff is, is, is really in the area of copyright law. Right? And just, just for a quick review, you know, patents protect ideas. Copyrights are their expression. And trademarks are what you call them. Right? And by the way, just because I get an opportunity to say this to you and you go, huh? If you don't, but, um, if you have a patent on something, you don't have the right to make that thing. Do you hear what I said? You have a patent on it, you don't have the right to make it. It gives you the right to exclude somebody else from making it. That's all a patent does. It's very powerful. All right? But the reason why you don't have a right is because you may read on somebody else's uh, uh, patents and thus cross licenses. Copyrights are the expression of ideas. So um, that's like code. Right? That's a good example of an expression. If you, if you look at open source software, um, what, what the, the central mechanism for creating um, a community around that is a license. And the license is what you put in the preamble of the software. It's the, you know, in the comments section of the code and things. That license is copy, by copyright law. It says, basically, the license gives you a set of rules, like you may have to propagate this license. Maybe you have to put back any changes that you've made or modifications or improvement. Um, and um, may or may not deal with patents, depending on which license. It may say that, boy, if you're using this code and you want to keep using it, then you can't prosecute anybody on any patents that you have. And, and essentially, if, if you violate the license, you violate copyright law, and that uh, allows uh, uh, people to go after you for copyright violations. So this is, this is all about the freedom of, of sharing code. And you know that creates communities. One of the the uh, um, sort of the surprising thing is that that model can be used to create communities in all kinds of ways. Um, the uh, we've taken our our uh, Spark 
microprocessor code, which is hardware. But for anyone who's done hardware, you know that, in fact, it looks a lot like writing code. Uh, and we've taken the, the description of, of that hardware and actually placed out and it built um, it's a, you know, in growing and growing communities out, uh, starting with the universities in academic settings, as well as companies that are uh, adopting this code and building um, products from it. Here's some other interesting examples of this. Um, and this is a, a, uh, a startup chocolate company in San Francisco who's on the mission of making obsessively good chocolate, Cho chocolates. Uh, that may appeal to people in here. Um, they, they run it as an open source model, in a, a very interesting way. They, uh, um, the center of this is, hey, you know, we don't really have much understanding or insight into even what people's flavor preferences around chocolate. Right? All you have is like the amount of cacao in the chocolate, know, how dark is it? Which is really like saying how much alcohol is in wine. Right? That may be a preference. But it probably doesn't describe the, you know, whether you, you're going to like wine or not. So they, they've developed this through user feedback of beta chocolate, this flavor wheel that has like six different kind of broad flavor areas in it. And they refine, you know, you refine your palate and they refine, you know, the preferences of people about where do particular mixtures from beans from different parts of the world end up. And so they beta test these things and now they have 1.0 chocolate and uh, there's, there's a bigger uh, story there too about uh, networks that they create. Here's another interesting one that is, is um, in a social sense interesting is, is uh, there is a, a project called the Open Prosthetics Project that is basically after, uh, it started with you know, how for, for people who have uh, prosthetic uh, uh, arms is um, uh, a lot of them have this thing called a Trotman hook that was no longer manufactured, but everybody has to figure out how they're going to maintain it, how can they reproduce it, how can they improve it. And this is just a community of people who have come together to go share mechanical engineering designs and to uh, sort of move forward the whole state of the art in, in prosthetics. And it's a, it's a very interesting you know, example of building these communities in the mechanical engineering sense of things. So um, let me... Uh, end here and then we'll get into the, the Q&A um, with the last part of this. I call them axioms of innovation management, sort of where uh, um, maybe I'm, I'm overinflating my, my insight into it. But these are, these are at least sort of eight things that I found important in, in managing or, or really in, in a, a real way fostering innovation. So, this first one, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not going to belabor this. Right? This, is, this is one of those real, well, it's a philosophical thing about you know, where, where are you going to send the time constants and you know, how ambitious are you going to be in innovation. But you really do have to think about this in the long term. I met some um, people here earlier from, who are over from uh, uh, Park um, and working on, uh, working on uh, uh, you know, some uh, long-term ideas in packaging of microelectronics, and uh, we've had a project at Sun that uh, invested well over $100 million in over the last 10 years, has yet to produce a single product, and we're going to keep investing in it because it is, uh, the potential that it has is unbelievable. So you, you, you look at, that's one extreme in the portfolio. Now the ones are, well, you look at things that are you know, uh, going to produce something in six months. Um, this is this is almost a McNeelyism. Um, I think I did. I did. I think he just says conventional wisdom isn't. That's a, what Scott McNeely says, and um, it's certainly more of a lifestyle question than anything else. But I think you know if everybody believes in something, then you're probably too late to it. Right? That there's there particularly now, and I, I get uh, you really see these effects now, and it's, I think it's part of the network age that we live in. You have an idea, somebody, it may be a really flamingly good idea, six months maybe is what your window is before sort of a bunch of other people have that idea. Right? It's, it's, uh, uh, but uh, you know, if, if everybody believes it's true, the, the value's been extracted from it. Uh, you know, I'd like to think 
that uh, you know, I, the organizations that I've helped manage from an innovation point of view is, are, well, you know, I got, I, all the great ideas come from you know, these central labs or a small group of people, and it gets propagated down. No, not at all. The best, the best ideas uh, I've seen, um, certainly at, at Sun, have ones that have come up from individual engineering teams. I will say as a manager, the thing that I get to do, and it's a real uh, joy, is to try to identify those and kind of act as, act as the magnet to pull them up through the, through the organization and to uh, help, help uh, uh, select them. What vision is, is, is a top-down thing. Vision is, back to the basics of engineering, is about a constraint system. It says, we're, we're kind of heading over in that direction, right? And here are the bumpers or jersey barriers, right? We're not going to go into that market. We're, you know, we're not going over here. We're kind of, you know, kind of in there, but okay, now go have fun and, and go into it. Um, now, one of my, my favorite Paul Sappho uh, uh, comments is, is, is you know, why the, the buildings in the valley are only two stories high and have grass all around them is so when people jump out of the buildings, <laughs> they only sprain an ankle. Um, and uh, and I, I think that's, that's what you know, a real important part of the valley is, is uh, failure is really an uh, uh, important part of the learning process. And you want to make, this may sound a little bit strange, but you want to you make failure really uh, uh, cheap. Right? And, and allow people to do it. That's, that's sort of the process, again, of, of learning, because when you get the success, you get to go run with that, too. I think it's a great cultural aspect. This is a, of, of the valley. This is another, uh, uh, another one along these lines, um, which is disrupt thyself, and I mean disrupt in the Christensen sense, of I may you know, have built the greatest technology, and I think I'm on top of the world, and I got it, and everybody, you know, I just killed my competition in this, right? And I keep making that product better and better, and, and uh, yet somebody comes along with a, uh, a less good thing, but it's cheaper, simpler, to, easier to use, and it comes up underneath and disrupts uh, what you do. You don't want that to happen to you. And if you don't want it to happen to you, you have to do it to yourself. Okay, so oftentimes you'll go in and say, God, I've got a cheaper way of doing this thing. I better go get it to market before somebody else does. I, you know, I... Uh, uh, talking about uh, one of, you know, in our co-opetition space, I think one of the most courageous things that Intel has done uh, recently is uh, the Atom microprocessor, people seen Atom, which is, uh, you know, not as good as uh, the, the sort of flagship microprocessors they do, but it's a lot less expensive and consumes a lot less power, and it's pretty good, and it's, you know, the netbook revolution. It has, has happened because of that. I, trust me, Intel makes a lot less money off of each Atom than they do off of each Pentium. All right, but much better that Intel is doing it than AMD, say, from their, their perspective. Um, this is sort of a, a, a very simple thing of uh, you know, small, smart teams. You keep coming back to this, I think, and we keep rediscovering it in, in, in business cycles. But uh, you know, teams are either uh, 10 are really effective, 10 or fewer, or 100. And you may say, what? What's that about, Greg? <laughs> All right, it's actually one level of management. You can get everybody in one room, and there's one leader for the team. That's the 10. Or right, there, there's two. There's essentially one team of managers and fan out from there. You build projects that are larger than this, it's really hard. Because right? the, the management overhead really starts to uh, uh, get in the way. You have to be very good if you're going to run larger teams than that. Um, technology transfer is a context sport. This is sort of looking at this from a, a lab's point of view, if you will, or advanced development into how do you get it into products. Uh, in context, this is context sport like rugby is context sport, not like ballroom dancing is a context sport. And it, it means that people have to go across that boundary. So if any of you aspire to be in a, a research or advanced development labs and you want to have an effect on product, number one way of having that effect is leave the labs with your idea and go into the product group, become one of them. And finally here, uh, it is all about the right people. Right? This is 
you know, if I close the loop on this conversation, it's the constructive art. We are constructive artists with our life experiences in there, and it's how you know it's it's how 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 good are the people? And, you know, ideas can be whatever, but but it's it's about people making it happen. And um, I will end with uh, what would be number nine, and then I decided you know this is really more of a life philosophy, so I'll I'll uh, uh, end with this and open it up to questions and. Solving problems is a negative thing, right? It's in some sense, there is a problem, I solve it, what did you do? Did you, you I, and we talk about society a lot in problem uh, solving terms. That's fine, problems are there that do need to be solved. Uh, the affirmative way of thinking about this is that you may see a problem and get inspired by it, but your, your job is to go create possibilities. It's, it's creating opportunities, it's imagining, right? Things that have never existed. So uh, with that, I thank you for taking four talks in the <laughs> space of one. Uh, and I think we're opening up for questions. Thank you. So thank you, Greg. Um, as uh, some of you have attended these lectures before, know this year, uh, first questions are taken from the MSNE 278 Spirit of Entrepreneurship class, which uh, surrounds this class and offers greater depth of study of each one of the speakers' companies. So, Greg, uh, unbeknownst to you, we're going to be dissecting Sun oh, um, <laughs> uh, uh, both before and after this class. Uh, so, let me start with the first question from the class. Given you joined Sun a decade after it was a scrappy yeah. little startup, but you were, your title was still managing R&D, yeah. how does R&D differ in a you know, company 12 years past yeah. its scrappy days versus what you would do in a startup? Well, uh, this is just for the record. So I did a number of startups uh, before, and uh, um, I uh, I never imagined myself at a big company for the length of time I've been there for sure. Uh, it, I, I ended up in Sun through an acquisition of uh, of a company I was uh, working with, uh, Thinking Machines, in in Cambridge, and I like startups because of the focus and the if you say scrappy, it's really about you're 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 uh, single-minded about it. The 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 problem in startups is about, well, all typically is not a technological one. It's about the machinery that you wrap, have to wrap around it from sales and business development and a whole bunch of things like that. And, um, and so the advantage of a big company is that you get these, you get sales teams and, and, and all of that. The attraction to me for Sun was I saw sort of startup mentality still, meaning small teams, crazy ideas and all that, in the context of a large amplifier. Right? So if you had your idea, your idea could get amplified by the sales force and all of the customers that were there. And to me, that's, that's kind of a magical thing. It was actually that experience and seeing that at the beginning is a thing that I've tried to maintain at Sun. And I think that's a difficult thing to do as companies, as companies mature. You Great. tend to do the big, huge machine teams. And that segues into the second yeah. question from the class. That, um, and uh, I... Uh, I uh, almost feel sorry for the engineer who asked it, but yeah. he said that uh, most engineers will spend their lives toiling in, in obscurity um, and, uh, and with their products never seeing the light of day, at least for mass adoption. Um, I, I thought that was a, I felt despondent after I actually got, read that question. But, but what advice do you give for, first of all, it, do you agree with that? And if so, what advice do you give uh, to engineers who realize that they will be a cog in a machine in a large company like Sun? <laughs> okay, so, so the student who asked that question, can I give you some career counseling about maybe another career to, to talk about? Um, you know, there's, there is a, first of all, I don't, I don't believe that's the experience of, of uh, engineers, uh, most engineers. And I, you know, that's part of, I think vital companies are ones that, that uh, you know, you do get to see your ideas out there. I will, I will give you a big hint that building external communities and open source and all that is a great way of amplifying ideas and not toiling in obscurity, but in fact leading communities. So put that in. I would, however, caution against the companies who advertise, we're going to get your idea to market no matter what. I had that personal experience. It was 1994. I'm afraid how young many of you were at that time. But for the history books, it was a time when Silicon Graphics was on top of the world. And I, I, I was 
Uh, out here, I actually had an equivalent offer from Silicon Graphics and Sun. And Sun was sort of in the, the downside at the point in time. People thought Sun's dead, never going to come back. Microsoft's killing Sun. That was the second Sun death in uh, 94. And, and, uh, uh, and, I, and, and I had, uh, uh, as I said, at Silicon Graphics, they, they did the Nintendo 64, which is coming out, uh, Jurassic Park, which was rendered on, on uh, SGI systems. They were on top of the world. And I remember going back, because I was still on the faculty at MIT. I was on leave. I went back to the faculty lunch, and I said, I'm leaving. Thank you. I loved it. So long. Thanks for all the fish. I am going to Sun. And, and people go, you're crazy. Why aren't you going to SGI? And I'll tell you why I didn't. Because when this story goes close, um, is that when I was interviewing at, at SGI with um, the, the president at, uh, of SGI at the time, uh, at the end of the interview, you know, I was feeling pretty good. But at the end of the interview, he said to me, he said, and one thing I want to tell you, we know you're interviewing at Sun or they're making you an offer. You can be at Sun and working on a project for you know, up to the point it's going to ship, and they'll cancel it. You work at SGI, I promise that whatever project you're working on, it's going to see its way to market. And that convinced me not to work for SGI. And I said, you know, if you don't have the courage to figure out what's going to make it in the market or not, or be able to make a business decision, I don't want to be at, at that company. Great answer. Thank you. Okay. Last question from the class, and then we'll open up to the uh, um, audience. So get your other questions uh, ready. Last question for the class was, has the current economic downturn, do you believe, affected the rate of innovation both at Sun and other places in Silicon Valley? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, it's a, uh, innovation loves a crisis. Right? So you, you, I, I think that it increases the rate of overall innovation because there are lots of opportunities that get created. The large-scale sort of R&D portfolios certainly get hit on that. And I think you know, the, the more effective things are how do you go uh, actually do innovation in a very focused, uh, very uh, uh, inexpensive way. And I, I think that um, you know, there are lots and lots of tools now. And again, the, you know, things like networking, if you're into you know, uh, kind of software ideas. But uh, um, people seeing like Tech Shop. Now, have you heard about that in, in uh, Menlo Park is sort of a you know, place where you can go do a whole bunch of mechanical engineering and development and, and use machine tools and things in a very open, uh, uh, shared environment. So I, I, I think that innovation increases in, in these times, but you don't see it by measuring sort of the dollars uh, that, that large companies put into it. Great. So let's open up the questions uh, to the floor. Uh, if you have some questions, just come on up or uh, raise your hand. Um, and I'll, uh, uh, I'll call on you. Questions? Questions for Greg? Yes. As the, um, as the transition of uh, semiconductors to kind of less and less speed performance yeah. per node uh, occurs, what happens with the kind of the economic drive that, that drove things for the last uh, year? So people, they, they, the question is about... Um, the, the economic cycle that has driven semiconductor investment, and now you know, looks like they're tapering off. And um, and uh, that. So, so first of all, I want to uh, emphasize that things like Moore's law are not laws of physics. We all know that, right? Semiconductors just don't sort of spontaneously double their density every 18 months. Um, they, they. Uh, that's a techno-economic law. It's a law of essentially the capital cycles around. You know what profits you can make, and therefore, what are you going to invest uh, upstream into equipment and, and downstream into its manufacture? So the the, uh, the what we see is it tipping over is in fact clock speed, and uh, and um, not in in a maybe in a gentle way, but not nearly as much in sort of the number of transistors that that get made or printed. And I I think that's really the and if you go back to the essence of Moore's law, it's about the consumption. It's about the, actually the production of transistors saying that they would double every 18 months uh, the number of transistors. And, and so um, it's basically, you know, your marketing problem is how do you double the consumption of transistors for every sort of man, woman, and child on the planet every 18 months, right? And as long as that continues, and I think the consumer electronics revolution is, is a really big demand function on that. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't... I, so I don't see the demand dropping off. Uh, and, and so I, I, I believe that techno-economic cycle is going to continue. Will it be 18 months? Will it be 24 months? 
Who knows? Right. Question um, over here. So um, as someone who's in charge of innovation and R&D mm -hmm. at Sun, what do you do? What levers do you have to stimulate innovation in oh, a company that size? Great question. So what are my levers to, to, to stimulate innovation? Uh, dollars is number one. So the, the number one thing I can do is invest in teams. And uh, if there are ideas, and uh, I think those ideas have promise, I can, I can move money over into that. And that's, that's the capital cycle inside a, a, a small company. In some sense, it acts, you know, I act like a venture you know, in a venture way in, in this. Uh, the other part, and it gets, you know, um, celebrating innovation and ideas where, you know, Sun is a really uh, iconoclastic uh, company, for better or for worse. We don't believe in conventional wisdom. We like things that are different. Um, <laughs> we'll see, right? Uh, and, and as you dissect Sun before and after, you know, about how profitable that is in a, in a capitalist sense, but it's a, it's a heck of a lot of fun. And you, uh, and you get rewards in that way, too, which is psychic rewards that I think are a lot about back to the toiling and obscurity. You, know, you really want to celebrate uh, you know, ideas and, and, and highlight them. Another question. How do you measure innovation? How do I measure? Innovation. How do you measure innovation? Um, well, yeah, there aren't good direct measures of saying, you know, is something innovative or not. You know, the, 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 I think the best measure in a capitalist thing is, so what are you returning to your shareholders, right? And, uh, and so you can, you, know, you can look at that from us and say, well, you're not being very innovative right now. Uh, but it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's more complex than that because what you, you really want to look at is uh, what are the, you know, for a particular technology that you've invested in, Essentially, what is it yielding in the in the marketplace? And so you back uh, you back solve that. But there's a more basic thing too. You know, like is it cool? Is it new? You know, I mean, I, we're yeah, for better or for worse. That's that's the way we look at it. This is back to this sort of iconoclasm of we like things that are different. And so innovation, in, in my view, is it's something different. And it, and it, and I wanted to come back to a little bit of the the. Uh, the principles here, if you're doing what is conventional or is the same, uh, or if everybody believes that's the way to go, you're not going to make as much money off of it, the, the, the ability to do that. You really do need to be doing something that's different, I think. Yes. Uh, I actually had a question about the environmental responsibility. Yes. I was very happy that you talked about that. Um, it's great to meet you. I was just wondering uh, to what degree so what do we, how much do we as Sun think about it? This, the, the genesis of this book was actually from my co-author David Douglas is the chief sustainability officer at, at Sun. And uh, it's been, you know, a, uh, a, two parts. It's a, there's sort of a part about, you know, this is the value system of the company. It's one that we think of ourselves as, as you know, how do you be a good company, I and mean, what does that mean? And and uh, uh, certainly, uh, uh, eco responsibility becomes part of that. Uh, it also it also turns out um, that you know uh, green is green, so uh, you you can uh, work on eco responsible things and make a lot of money. And you basically make that money through recovering inefficiencies or actually discovering things like, gee, don't stick the sticker on the you know the aluminum, and you can reclaim it. In a way, and we end up reclaiming 98% of the of uh, what we put into our, our products, and you know, so it's just it's just a, a really uh, uh, I think it, it it translates into a way of business, and that's actually essential. I think if if it, if if sustainability is sustainable. So what's the process of getting a new idea into, into reality? Uh, yeah, so yeah, long, a long-standing thing is really um, people end up with these Friday projects. Is, is, I think you, in, in organizations that want to pull innovation out is you have to give slack to the engineers. And part of that slack is there's a fraction of the time that I want you to work on something. Right? And um, go play with it and actually maybe get a couple of other people to go do it too. And then eventually you start, if you start getting results, is that you show it to your, this is what I've been doing on Friday or on the weekend or, or that, and begin to, to uh, you know, uh, uh, show it upwards. And if it's really cool, 
you know, send me an email and, and come let me see it. A lot of that happens, you know, and, uh, and then the, the money thing happens. <laughs> and everybody's happy. In the back. One question is, uh, Sun is a good company, at least used to be, and uh, now it's disappearing. And what lesson do you learn? What could you do differently? What would I do differently? Um, you know, it, it, it is, so we're being acquired by Oracle. Oracle's reputation in the, in the industry is, is uh, one of uh, extraordinary focus on, on the business of serving enterprise computing customers. So they're, they're a very business-focused company. Uh, as you hear from then, you see me, I'm a, just a kid about innovation and new ideas and what's cool, you know, how do you measure it? So there's, there really are, there, there's, there's, a, there's a really interesting cultural mean somewhere, right, that I don't think dilutes, but I think actually uh, uh, adds to it, which is um, get better at, at um, uh, for Sun, this would be, you know, the prescription is, uh, you know, get better at some of the, the harder business decisions um, that take place that may mean that, in fact, you're going to cut off something that looks like that you think is promising or not do something that, you know, you think is good uh, or different. But, uh, um, you know, go against the, the, the business realities or be more efficient in, in structures. And I suspect that business cases will be written ab about that, too. Uh, there's another part of just the industry of, you know, information technology industry is consolidating in, in a really substantial way. And I, I think being become part of Oracle and it's sort of 30-some thousand people becoming part of uh, an 80-some thousand person company, that, that's a big cultural injection into that. Is it, it is the way that, you know, it is the next step in the life cycle of Sun. Take a few more questions. Yes. If the future of computing is the cloud, and the cloud favors servers, yeah. a traditional strength of sun, and the biggest barrier to cloud computing adoption is speed, that's too slow, can sun do anything to solve that? So uh, there, there was a sort of a hypothesis in that question that I'm not sure I agree with, which is that the barrier to adoption of cloud computing is that clouds are too slow. I don't. I don't I don't hear that. Uh, I, uh, uh, I certainly hear uh, concerns about um, security, about concerns about bandwidth and access to, to clouds and things. Let me just sweep through it and say it's inevitable in my mind that this, there will be a transition from people buying computers to buying the effects of computing, essentially a service, whether that's a service that you, you get by going to a website or it's that you subscribe to Cycles. And, um, and, and it's, it, it, in, in some sense, I think it's inevitable. The challenges there are, I would say, it's not so much speed. And I'll tell you what's in the center. And I said, why do I invest 10 years in some packaging ideas? Uh, is the challenges are really around the efficiencies in which you're able to do that. And I said that you know, the, 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 the eco-impact of computing is mostly in its energy consumption in servers. Well, that's where the costs are, too. That's the eco equals eco in here. So if you go work on things like getting these things much more energy efficient, uh, much more efficient in terms of resources and materials, uh, you, you gain you know, competitive advantage in, in what you're projecting out. And so that's, that's a lot of the, the R&D is focused on that. I call it brutal efficiency in those, those settings. It's actually easier in the cloud sense because really the people consuming that are, in some sense, really professional. Right? The, serving a market of, of uh, as you do a broader market with you know, 60,000 customers is there's a lot of variance in people's sophistication in, in buying. So I'd rather sell to fewer sort of more sophisticated, larger customers. We'll take one last question. Yes. Um, it seems that you need to make a lot of decisions that are strategic in nature about okay. which direction you want to have the innovation in. And you have 50 okay. or 60 ideas that come on the table every so often. So my question is, how and to what extent do you keep track of the bigger picture? Yeah. Do you go to conferences, read books, magazines? You know, how do you, do you go sit in your competitor's office? Or do you talk to your friends? Or how, how do you basically keep touch of what's not happening in the sun? Oh, that's a, that's a really good question about, so how do you stay in touch with what's, what's relevant? Um, the, you know, 
fortunately, the marketplace that we're in isn't that big. I don't have that many competitors to look at. That's part of the consolidation that's happening. So uh, it's really important that I encourage everyone to do this is you want to know your competition. I mean, even to the extent that we will as, as companies, you know, we'll go buy, we'll go pretend, we'll set up some shell company somewhere and go buy computers of our, our comp competitors and tear them apart. Right? So you, you understand what, it, you, it's not illegal. It's just that if we bought it directly, we probably wouldn't get great service. So, uh, you know, it's, it, so you, you do those things. And you, you know, in, in some sense, and this is really, I think it's an important uh, psychological position. I'll, I'll leave people with this uh, uh, view, is that, um, as I said, innovation happens everywhere. So you want to be open to cool ideas that are happening elsewhere and figure out you know, how you're, you're, uh, you can go take advantage of those ideas too and how you might incorporate them in. And you know, I'll, I'll leave you with, with the, the, a great Pablo Picasso quote, right? Which is, good artists copy, great artists, it's great artists steal. So, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for coming, Greg. Thank you. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.